All right, all right. Hey, I love seeing I love seeing all the uh, new faces. Is, is this cutting in and out? Is it cutting in? I may need it. We'll see. We'll see. I can't tell. So if it's cutting in and out, let me know. Okay. Uh, you guys ever go to? Uh, yeah, I need to switch. Sorry. Mic difficulties. Uh, it, it, I was saying is it's so good to see so many new faces. Uh, and I'm not gonna, you know, make you stand up or raise your hand anything like that. And you guys ever grow up going to church? And whenever a new person came to church, they had to like stand up and like answer a question. It's like the most humiliating thing. I just, yeah. Even if I was new, like all oh, the new people stand up. It's like nope, nope, definitely not. I'm an I'm an introvert by nature, uh, extrovert by mission. Uh, it's maybe an omnivert is what I'm at now. If that's the thing. Uh, hey, a couple things I want to put on your radar is uh, if you are new or you want to get more connected, I realize people are starting to feel more and more comfortable as we, people are trickling back uh, into in-person gatherings. So uh, if you want to get more connected, get in a small group, join a what we call the dream team, which is a serving team uh, here at Voice, where you want to get more involved in the community and what that would look like. If you want to grab coffee with uh, my wife or I or someone on the team and hear more of your story. We'd love to do that. Just fill out the connection card. If you're watching online, just go to voice.church forward slash connect uh, and fill out the card uh, there. Or if there's anything we can support you uh, in prayer, uh, please fill out a connection card. We'd love to. We pray over every single prayer request that comes in. and We keep praying about that. And we'll check in with you uh, to see how things are going. Or actually, if you have an answer to prayer, we love hearing those too. So if you put in a prayer request or you didn't and uh, you're like, I prayed for this and God answered the prayer this way, man, I love, nothing gets us more stoked than when God answers uh, prayers around here. A couple other things, Aiden mentioned this, August 7th, we are having a uh, end of summer celebration, end of summer bash. So it's at Centris Ranch Park. It's where we had our Good Friday and Easter services. Uh, it will be outside. Pray for, you know, not... Uh, this weather, uh, and I know those of you guys coming, I know like, they, the Calderon's driving from uh, inland, and they're like, oh, this is nothing. You sissies, uh, 80 degrees really is that hard for you? Uh, we actually, Christy drives in from uh, Palm Desert or Palm Springs. It's like two hours, right? So it's like 120 degrees there. She's like, oh, 80 degrees, really? Is that, is that hard for you? That's air conditioning for us. So uh, anyways, August 7th, we're going to have it outdoors. It's just, there's no agenda just to bless the community. So we'll, we're gonna, it's not just for our church. Don't, don't see it as just a church picnic. Uh, we want to position our church to bless the community, to say that we're going to have like fun activities and competitions and like maybe like a cornhole tournament and just bounce houses, stuff like that. No agenda, just to uh, give the community something fun to go to, including us. So if you just want to attend, if you just want to swing through for half an hour, if you want to serve at it, if you can do like, uh, not finger painting, was it face painting? <laughs> if you can finger paint, do that on your own time, it's great. I really encourage that. Uh, but uh, if you can face paint or you like to make cotton candy and stuff, just to serve our community, it'll be a good time. So that's August 7th. Also want to give you a heads up. Uh, that uh, I've, I haven't told you this yet, but the elders have asked uh, Natalie and I to go on a sabbatical. Woo! And here's the thing. Yeah, Raphael's an elder. Uh, <laughs> they're forcing us to go on. And hey, here's what it comes down to, just so you got complete transparency, is this last year and a half has probably been the, the most challenging season of ministry and leadership of, of my life uh, and our lives. And so we haven't taken any time off over the last year and a half, and the elders caught wind of that and said, yeah, you're going, you're taking some time off. So uh, last next week we'll be here, and then four weeks following that, you're, we're going to kind of just be MIA. Uh, you can follow us on social if you want to know what we're eating that day or what we're doing. I'll show you my sandwich. Uh, so, uh, but we're going to just staycation, hang out, uh, and yeah, just thank you to the Dream Team to make that happen. Uh, everyone that's serving, because church will still go on. It'll, it'll probably be better uh, when we're not here, uh, but it's awesome. So, and that's going to kick off the four-week series of, of Mic Drop, where the Ordas are coming in. Do you guys remember Mike and Tiff Orda? Uh, they're going to come in and speak that first week, and then we'll have other guest speakers. They're already lined up. We'll let you know when they, as the time comes. But, uh, yeah, so with that, hey, we're, I'm going to go and hop in. Uh, if you're new to the church, I say this every once in a while because I realize people are new. If you're new to the church, uh, I speak really fast, okay? So this is me speaking slowly. All right, in my head, I'm speaking slowly, 
but I realize that I'm not actually speaking slowly. So, but I, I, I believe that if you can listen to a podcast on one and a half speed, this is like the right speed for you. Okay. So uh, if you don't, if you're one of the ones that listen to on one speed, like one X, which I don't understand, I feel like they're in slow motion. I'm just like, spit it out, spit it out. Then this might be kind of challenging for you. You can watch this later on YouTube and then slow it down or whatever on your podcast app. Okay, so we're going to hop in because there's this is a really interesting passage we're going to cover. We're kind of on the home stretch of our journey through the Gospel of Luke. And so we're going into uh, Passover week. We're going into uh, the Passover dinner, Passover Seder, the first communion ever taken. This is going to be an interesting topic because the, the disciples are really confused. And Jesus reveals some more of his values of how he views leadership in particular. And how he wants us as Christians to lead. And what's so ironic is what Jesus asks us to do is not obvious and is not commonplace within Christian leadership many times. And it's very unfortunate. But we're going to go back to what Jesus said, how, how, how we should lead. And it's not about, this is not just for pastors. This is not just, I don't want you to look at this and go, oh no, this is for you as a pastor. No, no, this is for all of us that are in leadership. And you may think, well, I'm not in leadership. You are. Leadership is influence, right? John Maxwell says leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. So anybody who influences somebody else is a leader, right? So every single person in this room, every single person watching online is a leader. And everyone benefits when you, when you, lead, when you lead better, when I lead better. Everyone benefits. So it's really interesting what he's going to talk about. It's really upside down. This is... Not the way I was raised in my house to lead. This is not the way I was even trained in ministry to lead, ironically. This is not the culture that uh, I caught for leadership when I came into spiritual leadership. But it's the way Jesus asks us to lead. Uh, so we'll get there. We'll start off in Luke chapter 22. Uh, I'm going to say this too. This has been the hardest week of sermon prep. Usually sermon prep is not that challenging. It's actually, it's, it's somewhat life-giving because it's, it's Bible study with a purpose, really. You know what I mean? So it's, but this week I felt like it was uphill, the wind in my face, on a slippery slope. Everything was one step forward, four steps back. And I'm going, what is going on? And the only thing I can think is that the enemy really doesn't want this to be spoken. And here's the funny thing about sermons is that you know, after a Sunday morning, one person will say, this is what I got from it. Someone else will say, this is what I got from it. And they're totally different things. I believe the Holy Spirit translates from what I say to your ears and Taylor makes it for what you need to hear. Over and over again, we hear people say, man, that was, a, that was like you were talking directly to me and here's what I took from it. And I'm like, how'd you get that? That's not, that wasn't, a, was that one of the points? Did you, were you at voice church this morning? What were you listening to? So, I believe that there's something God wants to speak to you today and the, the enemy really doesn't want you to hear something. So I challenge you to lean in, not because what I have to say is anything great, but there's some opposition. And what I believe is that opposition can actually lead you to what is the most important, what's valuable. That the resistance can lead you and guide you to things that are important. So we're going to jump in for real this time. Luke chapter 22, verse 1. Uh, it says this, The festival of the unleavened bread, uh, which is also called Passover, was approaching. The leading priests, uh, leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. Uh, earlier verse, if you can. Uh, the festival of the unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. The leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. So remember, we talked about before, the religious leaders were trying to get Jesus out of their way because he was really messing up their system. And people really don't like change when it messes up their comfort zone, right? I don't think people are afraid of change. People, are like, people say that, you know, people are change resistant. It's not true. I think people like change. I think what people don't like is loss, right? We like change if it's like, hey, you're going to make 20% more money this year. I'm good with change, right? Give us your old car. We'll give you the brand new version. I'm good with change, right? So what happens here is they were arguing with him before. They want Jesus out of the way, so they were arguing with him initially. You had Pharisees that are literally arguing with Jesus, which is so 
crazy. And then they escalated. We talked a couple weeks ago where they actually hired spies to infiltrate Jesus's meetings and ask, first butter him up, right? We talked about that. And then ask him questions to try to trap him verbally so that he would either put himself at odds with the crowd or he would say something that would get Rome to come down on him. Right, so they would send spies, and now they're just trying to outright kill him. Now they're just, it's just outright saying they're plotting how to kill him. But even though the, the religious leaders, in this case the Sanhedrin, was all-powerful, they were still put in check by the people's opinion. So they couldn't just go out there. Legally, they could. He, he, Jesus had said blasphemous things. They could just go out there and arrest him and take him and try him and do whatever they wanted because they were the, the, the law of the day. But they didn't because the people's opinions put him in check. They didn't want to start an uprising. So they're afraid of what people would say, what people would do. And even then, PR was a thing. Right? If they had brand managers and a PR firm back in that day, they would have hired them because they were all about image. And they understood what we know to be true today, that crowds are powerful, but crowds are fickle. Right? Crowds are powerful, but crowds are fickle. One moment, they're cheering Jesus on, laying palm leaves in front of him, praising him. A few days later, they'll be crying, crucify him. Crowds are fickle, right? And it's the same way when we follow fads, right? Well, you ever like think back to the clothes you used to wear, the hairstyles you used to have, and you're going, I remember like fighting with my parents to let me buy a starter jacket. You know what I mean? A Chicago Bulls starter jacket, because they actually used to win games a long time ago. And until the, our, my school said that was gang attire. Did that, was that here too, like in the 90s, where starter jackets gang attire? I don't know if they actually were, but we were a lot of work. I remember arguing with my mom so I could buy Jenko jeans. Remember Jenko jeans? My favorites were the pipes, and they were 19 inches, which is probably close to my waist size at the time. And they were just pipes straight down. They're like not even bell bottoms. They were just thick all the way down. And then some of my friends had like 32-inch bottoms. So the bottoms were 32 inches, right? And they were so cool back then. But now, not as much. Let me show you a, a few pictures uh, to kind of highlight the fads. All right. So this, this is me hanging out with my cousins in, in Korea. Obviously, rocking Cubs gear. It's me on the right. Uh, and if you notice, this was, I don't know if this was in style, but I feel like Korea in the 80s had its own style. So I, I'm wearing aqua socks. Uh, like shoes with white crew socks. So that's a thing. I got my Casio calculator watch on because you never know when you need to do math. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, next slide. Uh, this is a little older. This is in Tokyo hanging out with my uncle and grandpa, and that's my mom on the left. Uh, now, there's all sorts of things going on here that I promise you was cool at the time. There's, uh, there's a fanny pack uh, that's you know, Rastafari inspired because I was the Asian Bob Marley in my head. I uh, got my purple and teal because those were the Nike flight colors of that year. Uh, so I had the full uh, Nike flight track suit, uh, top and bottom, purple and teal. Wasn't rocking it this day, but I still was going for the overall theme, right? So I had my plaid purple and teal pants or shorts. I got my I think, I don't know what brand that was, Hobie or something, uh, sweatshirt. My purple and teal flight hat did have that on. And then Asics wrestling shoes uh, because I don't know why all my friends wore either Timberlands or wrestling shoes out in public, if you guys remember those days. Uh, let's go to the next one. This put on the right, do you guys know who this is? Um, you can't. You can barely see him because his skin is almost as white uh, as the as as a cloud. Uh, that's that's our one of our elders, Eric, uh, rocking what what his wife says is a bowl cut, but I would affectionately call that a butt cut <laughs> because it's obviously two cheeks of the butt cut. That's 
one of our elders. This is proof that God can use anybody, okay? You just never know what's going to happen. But, okay, next slide. This is my version of the butt cut uh, back in the late 90s. My hair actually was down to here eventually. That was This is mid-stage. Uh, There's so much to unpack with that picture. Next one. Uh, do you know who this is? Uh, this is another one of our elders, Raphael. I feel like we can make fun of our elders. Uh, so this is Raphael. He's right here in the maroon shirt. He texts me this week, and he goes, can you please put this picture uh, at church? So I think these are, those are Zubas. Uh, oh, okay, so even cooler, right? Uh, MC Hammer Pants in uh, some sort of psychedelic lava lamp uh, look pattern with the tucked-in tank top. Very nice, very nice. Uh, and then the last picture also of Raphael, only because he's, he's, he's cute, but he's got a mullet. <laughs> he's got a mullet, and that you just can't pass that up. So I, obviously he didn't dress himself that day. That one's on his, on his parents, but the mullet, uh, I, I think you should bring it back. So all that, all that to say, these are funny to look at, but no one would have laughed at these pictures then. Like, the things that we laughed at, like the, the outfits that we, you know, I'm, and I'm sure you got yours too, right? I'd love to see those. The, they were, like, cool. You worked hard. You saved up. You were, like, you couldn't wait to go to school the next day to show your friends your hammer pants, right? Your new shoes, your aqua socks, or your wrestling shoes, right? You couldn't wait to show them your members-only members jacket. I remember I had this bright purple stretchy spandex pullover. It sounds weird, and it was, but I wore it skiing, and it was, like, so cool. And it was by this brand named Hot Chili's. And it was so cool. And it was not cheap. And I look back at pictures, and it was so ugly. Like, it was bright purple. That's, no one should wear that. So, but that's how fads work, right? They're so important in the moment, and then they're not later. A couple things to recognize as we're looking at cultural pressure, especially when it comes to fads. One is this. We all have to recognize that there is a current of culture. There is a current of culture that is constantly pushing at all of us. There's a current of culture that's pushing against all of us. And some people may say, oh, no, I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I'm not impacted by. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. When I look at my hipster friends, it's like, oh, you're unique, just like everyone else that's wearing that same hat. You're super unique, just like everyone else who bought that thing off of Etsy. Right? You're being pushed in a certain direction by a current of culture. And if there are obvious ways, like through clothing and hairstyles, that we see that happening, then there are some things underneath the surface of values, of decisions, ways of living, ways of spending money, ways of spending your time, the ways of doing relationships that are also at play. So my challenge to you is if there is a current of culture that's pushing against all of us, can I challenge you to guard your heart? I'm not saying hole up in your house and, you know, poo-poo everything going on out there in the sort of commune. That's like a grandma saying. Just poo-poo everything out there. Not, not saying that. I'm saying engage with culture. Be a part of culture. Build relationships. You should know people that are far from faith that don't go to the church. You should be close to people that are far from faith. But guard your heart. Just be on guard. That right now we got to recognize that there's a few things happening. There's, right now there's a culture of outrage. You feel that? There's a culture of outrage. More than a, more than a cancel culture, there's just a, a culture of outrage. There's like this attitude of arguing, right? There's a sense of either you agree with me or you're dead to me. If you agree with me, cool. We're cool. We can be friends. If you disagree with me, you're a moron. And we can't, have, we can't eat dinner together. We can't be friends. You know, that's not biblical. The biblical approach is not only love your enemy, not only pray for your enemy. That's supposed to set up a dichotomy of even if you can love and befriend your enemy, then you can befriend someone who disagrees with you. And we've talked about this before. One of our 
goals from the very beginning of this church was to create a diverse church. And diversity means that you're going to be sitting next to someone who disagrees from, with you. They see the world differently than you. And maybe one of you are right. Maybe both of you are wrong. But a sense of humility that says, look, if I grew up in your shoes, maybe I'd see the world through your eyes. If I experienced life like you experienced it, maybe I'd agree with what you're saying. We're a product of our culture. And in this room, there are people born in all different countries. Our parents are from all over the place, right? All of us, in different ways, have had stinky dinners, right? I remember my, my, old, my, my, my old neighborhood was very multi-ethnic, right? And at dinner time, you could smell the world, right? You knew who was cooking chitlins or curry or kimchi or whatever. You could smell it in the neighborhood, and it was a beautiful thing. And we find out is that there are, there are people that you may disagree with, but you don't rally around. You don't focus on what you disagree with. You focus on what unites you. That all of us in this room, we may vote differently. We may believe different things politically. We may believe different things with foreign policy or domestic policy or immigration. But you know what we can agree on? Jesus. Right? We can all agree on that the Cubs are Jesus' team. Like there are some basic things we can all agree on, right? We can rally around what, we, what unifies us, not what, what separates us. So one, recognize that there's a current of culture constantly pushing against all of us. Number two, we must be grounded in something more eternal. We must be grounded in something more eternal because we can't anchor to something that's constantly shifting. You can't anchor yourself into a culture that's constantly moving, that's what's good one day is bad the next day. Anchor to something far outside of us. Too many of us are making long-term decisions based on short-term emotions. Let me say it again. Too many of us are making long-term decisions based on short-term emotions. We're making permanent choices based on temporary situations. Can we be better, be better than that? Look, what's so wild is I used to be, you know, for I, I became a believer in 95, March 11th, 1995. Uh, and the church I was a part of is a large church. And uh, that's all I've ever, I would say there for 20 years. And what I'm used to, my, me and my native habitat, is high production church. Right back in those days, we'd have like, uh, <laughs> some of you guys that didn't grow up in this kind of church are like, what? Like Christmas specials with like people dressed up as angels hanging by wires from the ceiling, you know, kind of thing. It's very Pentecostal. Fog and lasers and, you know, someone riding a camel or something. High production, right? And then later it evolved to, like, big LED walls and dance routines. It's high production church. High energy, high hype church. And so I love that stuff. But for us in our season as Voice Church, right, launching a year and change before, you know, the world fell apart, and then now we're rebuilding back up, we, we can't do those things, right? And it's not that those things are bad. Just for us, it'd be financially irresponsible for us to do those things. We could do it once, uh, and then we can never have church again, <laughs> right? <laughs> so not worth it. But here's the cool thing. Scarcity brings clarity. So what I love about this season of our church is that we can only be grounded on Jesus and relationships with one another. Because we don't have the financial capacity to be grounded on anything else. We as a church cannot be grounded on hype and huge events because you don't have them. There's no cool lights. There's no like LED wall. They use these TVs for like boardroom meetings in here, right? Like these show like spreadsheets during the week, right? This is our tech. So if you want to ground your faith and hype and all that and high emotion and high energy moments, you're at the wrong church. You're probably, you're probably already left. So the only thing we can be grounded on here at Voice in this season is relationship with God and relationship with one another. And here's why that's great. Because when it hits the fan in your life, and it will, 
inevitably, I'm not, I'm not Debbie Downer, I'm just saying inevitably, it will. The Bible says that inevitable it is for stumbling blocks not to come. So stumbling blocks will come. We will fall. We will have low moments in life. And when those moments happen, it won't be lasers and fog and petting zoos that get you through those moments. And lasers and fogs and petting zoos are awesome. I remember one time we, we brought in a huge petting, we had two petting zoos uh, for an event we did at our old church. And one of the, one of the sheep uh, gave birth in the middle of a petting zoo. And, the, and kids were like, what? <laughs> Moms like shielding their kids' eyes, you know. So I love those moments. <laughs> They're awesome, right? But it'll be the strength of your relationship with God and the strength of your relationship with one another that gets you through. And some of you guys, even in this past year, you've gone through some stuff. And you didn't, those moments didn't go, if I just had some good moving lights right now. No. You know what you did? You rallied your small group around you. You, you, you went to service. You went to a, a gathering. The, the moments you least want community are the moments you most need community. And so you did. And God showed up. And you left different. So, going, uh, continuing on. Uh, verse 3. It says, then Satan, now that's going to be an interesting passage. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12 disciples. And he went to, to the leading priests and the captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray them. They were delighted, temple guard was, and the, the high priest. And they promised to give him money. So he agreed, Judas agreed, and began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds aren't around. So Judas... It says here that Satan entered Judas. I remember the first time I read this, I was like having like a, like Emily Rose, like exorcist kind of like Judas's head is spinning around. He's floating like three feet off the ground, right? It's not what's happening. If you look at the commentary here, what's actually happening is Judas made decisions to open himself up to be led by the enemy, which all of us can do. All of us can do. What's, what's interesting is the Gospels mention Satan sporadically. A lot of times they'll mention uh, Satan as kind of this uh, caricature of evil. But then there's certain specific times where they'll mention him by name, and this is one of them. The last time Luke mentions Satan by name was when he was tempting Jesus in the desert. Right before Jesus started his earthly ministry, he fasted for 40, 40 days, and then Satan gave him three temptations, right? I think there's a movie, Temptations of Christ, it's like a thousand years old. But uh, last, last time we see the devil mentioned, it's actually Luke chapter 4, verse 13. It says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. That's the last time we saw Satan mentioned three years earlier. Now's the opportune time. He was waiting for the right time. Can I tell you, the enemy's patient. He's patient. Sometimes the enemy will try to take you out when you are just starting something. Before you can ever do anything significant. And that's the most beneficial to him. Sometimes the enemy will wait. I've seen this happen so many times to people I love. They'll start having a, a problem with uh, money. Or they'll have a problem with, uh, like, relationships, put it that way, sexually. And it's under the surface. No one knows that they're highly materialistic or they're a little unethical financially or they kind of flirt too much, but they're talented. The enemy could take them out then, but he doesn't. He waits. Why? Because he can do way more damage if that person is allowed to rise to prominence. And then when, it, when they fall with a scandal that involves a secretary or an intern or whatever, or they spend money in the church in unethical ways, the blast radius is way bigger. The enemy's patient. The enemy's patient. I can't tell you so many times when I look at pastors that I admire that when it comes out that they were hiring prostitutes or whatever, some of their ministries were the most successful leading right up to it. 
Enemy's patient. Enemy's patient. Some of you guys think you're getting away with stuff. Some of you guys are doing things, you're like, well, God doesn't see. Yeah, enemy's just waiting. He's just waiting. Can I challenge you? Don't let sin grow in your life. Whether it's public or not, it's not wrong when it goes public. You know when it's wrong. You feel that check. And the problem is we can get to a point in our lives where we get used to ignoring the voice of God. Where he, we no longer hear him saying, come on, man, don't do that. Don't do that. The enemy's patient. So the enemy waits until there's a weak link in Jesus' inner circle. He waits until there's, you know, the, 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 the feast of the past unleavened bread, which is one of three large feasts annually that happen where everyone comes back into Jerusalem. So it's kind of unrest. It's kind of, there's, there's riot police out waiting, right, ready for anything to happen because things tend to happen over Passover in Jerusalem. So there's unrest. There's weak things happening in Jesus' inner circle. And now Judas is looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Again, this is not possession. This is why Jesus said just like three verses earlier in verse 36, he says, keep alert at all times and pray that you might be strong. Because he's talking about this. Look, we don't know why Judas betrayed Jesus. We don't know. There's all sorts of commentaries about it. It's, it's a rabbit hole if you, got, if you want to dig down in there. But the only thing that everyone agrees on is that money had a big part to do with it. Some people are, there's all sorts of theories that we don't have time to get into, but the main common thread is that money has something to do with it. Do you guys know Judas was the treasurer of Jesus's ministry? There was even a time where uh, John, he writes John's gospel, he said that Judas would steal, he'd skim off the top of the ministry funds. Like there's a time where, uh, you know, the woman broke the alabaster box and, you know, that whole story. And Judas is like, why'd she do that? Why'd she spill all the perfume? We could have sold that and given that money to the poor. Which sounds like a, yeah, that makes sense. That's because he was skimming off the top, John says, in that same passage. So of course he wants to sell it, so he gets his cut. Again, habit, habit. Matthew's account, when he's talking about when Judas goes to the temple guard and the high priest, Matthew's account says that Judas says, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? So he's going, look, I'll betray him if it's worth it. Tell me your price. And so they agree on a price, 30 pieces of silver, which is about a month wages. About a month wages. Now some of us go, a month wages? That is a lot of money, but... That's not enough to betray Jesus? Can I tell you, man? People betray Jesus. People are unfaithful to Jesus for far less. Far less. Think about the times where, where you feel the Holy Spirit going, give that person 50 bucks. I'm like, eh, la, 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 la. Right? Help that person out. Nah, I really don't want to. We all got a price. Judas, for Judas, it was 30 pieces of silver. So, Satan enters Judas and Judas leaves Jesus. The love of money enters Judas and Judas leaves Jesus. Terrible exchange. But it happens all the time. Maybe this is why later the early apostles would write the verse, the love of money is the root of all evil. I wonder as Timothy was writing that, he was looking back and reflecting back on the story of Judas, the one that sold out their Lord. Man, love of money, don't do that. Don't play with that. Listen, you can't follow Jesus and love money. You just can't. I'm not saying you hate money. I'm just saying you can't love money. Because there, there will come a time when they'll be in competition. There'll come a time when they will conflict. And whichever one you love more, whichever one you value more, will win in that moment. So, continuing. So leaders were stoked because Judas comes and says, how much will you pay me? 30 pieces of silver? Nothing. For their treasury, 30 pieces, one man's wages? Nothing. To betray Jesus? To be able to take him out in an isolated way without messing with crowds that Judas can tell us exactly when to arrest Jesus and no one will know we can do this secretly? No one rest? Yeah, heck yeah, 30, 30 pieces of silver for sure. So leaders were stoked because Judas simplified their plans. 
They sent spies before, but now they have an inside man. So continuing, verse 7. Now the festival, the unleavened bread, arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. And Peter and John are going, whoa, 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 where? Jesus said, go prepare the meal. Okay, where? Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. We'll explain that. He replied, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water, other translations say a jar of water, will meet you. Follow him. Next verse. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher, capital T meaning Jesus, asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. They went off to the city and found everything just as Jesus had said and they prepared the Passover meal there. Here's what's going on. See, Jesus did a little spy work of his own too. And he had prearranged where to have the Passover meal. The reason why this is this significant is he knows Judas will betray him. He knows Judas and the high priests and the temple guard have set up an agreement to take him out in a vulnerable moment. And he knows it's going to happen. But it's not time for it to happen yet. The communion, the Passover meal, was the perfect opportunity to take Jesus out. It was isolated. And you guys have ever visited the upper room in Jerusalem? It is very isolated. Judas could have told the temple card then if he knew about it. It was really important that none of the apostles knew beforehand where this was going to happen. Because this meal and what Jesus is about to do was extremely important for the passing of the baton of leadership. So he says there will be a man carrying a jar of water or a pitcher of water. The reason why that's important, and again, we may not realize this because we don't carry jars of water. We carry like our Nalgene's or our Yetis around, but not in this context. Men didn't carry jars of water. Men didn't carry pitchers of water. Men carried water skins, right? M women carried jars of water. So it would be distinctive when he said, look for the man carrying the jar of water. There'd be just one guy doing that. And that was like their secret code. So Jesus had already prepared this conversation and the guy already prepared the space, the Bible says, and would go down and meet and be carrying his jar of water, waiting for someone to notice. So next verse. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Once again, we see Jesus marching towards his soon coming pain. We don't see this passivity. We don't see this like apathy, delaying. He's plotting towards what he knows will be suffering. I don't think Jesus is looking forward to suffering, but he's looking forward to the, the new covenant. See, this meal, this Passover meal, marks a shift that is thousands of years in the making. Since creation, since Egypt, the exodus from Egypt, since the covenant with Abraham that one day I'll bring a Messiah. And now it's happening. This is the shift where all mankind can now be reconciled with God. There could be relationship restored between God and his creation. This would also be the birth of the church. And see, all these disciples have had Passover meals together. This is why he didn't, when he sent Peter and John, he didn't have to tell them, here's all the things you prepare a Passover Seder, a Passover meal together. They knew what to do. They've had them every year they've been alive. So every year, if you, how many of you guys ever done like a Passover Seder? Passover uh, meal? Yeah, like four of us in the room. Um, here's a few things you'd have. You eat an egg. An egg is symbolic of the circle of life. Lion King moment, right? Circle of life. Salt water to represent the bitter tears of slavery. You'd eat the, almost like this applesauce kind of thing. That's like their version of applesauce to represent the mortar that from forced labor of building uh, walls. You'd eat bitter herbs to... Uh, symbolize the bitterness of slavery. And then there were four cups of wine. Four cups of wine you drink. The first cup is a cup of sanctification. And each of these cups have a verse from the Old Testament that goes along with it. The first cup is a cup of sanctification. And the verse says, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. 
Next verse, our next cup is a cup of deliverance. I will rescue you from their bondage. Next verse, the cup of redemption. Third cup you would drink. I will redeem you with an out. These are all from the same passage, I believe, in Deuteronomy. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And the last cup, the fourth cup, is the cup of praise. I will take you as my people. And leave us up there for a second. So what you're saying is every time you'd have Passover, you'd remember the exodus from Egypt, but you'd look forward to a soon coming Messiah that would restore all mankind. And the first three is God the rescuer. I will bring you out from the, under the burden of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. In other words, I'm the one stretching out my arm. You can't reach me, but I can reach you, and I will. So that's the first three cups. And the last one is I will take you as my people. Not only will I rescue you, but we'll have relationship. Right? This is the, where they would say things like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This isn't a God of, you know, this big judge in the sky. No, no, this is a God of my father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a, a relationship God. So those are the four cups. And then so it continues. This, this, this is what's happening behind the scenes as we read this next verse. Worship, you can come up uh, whenever you want. Verse 17, then he took a cup of wine. Uh, going back to what we're talking about in the scripture. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. Now, put yourself in one of the disciples' shoes. You've had dozens and dozens and dozens of these Seder, these Passover meals. Right? So everything's kind of on script so far. He said, I will not drink again until the kingdom of God has come. All right. That's a little weird, Jesus, but we'll keep going. Then he says, he took some bread. And gave thanks to God for it. Unleavened bread. Remember, this is the, uh, the feast of the unleavened bread is a week-long thing that starts with, Passover, uh, with a Passover meal. That's the beginning of the, of, the, of the big feast. And the unleavened bread was to symbolize their fast exodus, their fast retreat out of Egypt. They didn't have enough time to let the bread rise. Right? So it was unleavened. It was unrisen. So they remember that by eating unleavened bread. You're wondering why like communion crackers are still like stale. That's why uh, it's unleavened. So he says, he took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and, and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What? That's a new one. Your body broken. You're going off script. In remembrance of you, you are you going somewhere? What's happening? Next verse, verse 20. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Wait, hold up. Sacrifice? You're, you're bleeding? Like right now? Like poured out? What are you talking about? Are you hurt? Thoroughly confused. In remembrance? But then he doesn't explain it. They're thoroughly confused. He just goes on. Verse 21, he says, But here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. Isn't that wild? Sitting among us is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? The disciples began to ask each other, which of them would ever do such a thing? Their response is always themselves. Always themselves. Not Jesus, are you okay? Let's lock the doors. We're going to figure out who this person is. No, their first response is, I would never do that. It's not about you, bro. He just said he's going to pour out his blood for you. Can we just camp on that for a second and not like how you're loyal, right? Next verse. Then, and this is so crazy. Well, actually, before that, what's interesting about the whole Judas thing, notice Jesus, Jesus is letting Judas know he knows. But Judas doesn't try, or Jesus doesn't try to stop him. Even in that moment, Jesus is giving Judas free will. Saying, hey, I know what you're going to do. I know what you've already done. I need you to know that I know, but I'm not going to stop you. I'm not going to try to control you. Interesting leadership. 
I'm not gonna try to make you do. You're gonna do what you're gonna do. I'm just, I just want you to know that I know what you're doing. That's it. Do whatever you want with that. So the next verse, it says, then they began to argue among themselves who would be the greatest among them. How crazy is this? Jesus is saying, do this in remembrance of me, which means I'm gonna die soon. I'm about to start my suffering. You're gonna see it. This, this doesn't make sense now. It will make sense in a couple days. Trust me. You're gonna see my blood spilled. And their first response is, who would be greatest among them? What? Jesus told them, this is the, where Jesus says, look, your leadership philosophy is all messed up. He says in verse 25, Jesus told them, in this world, the kings and great men lord it over their people, right? All the people are there for the king's benefit, the leader's benefit. And they're called the friends of the people. But then he says, but among you, it will be different. He says, look, this is the way everyone leads. This is the way you've seen it done. You've seen it done in Rome. You've seen it done with the Tetrarchs, the Monarchs. You've seen it done with the governors. You've seen it done with the high priests, the Levites, the temple guard. You've seen it done in the Sanhedrin. You, this is the way you see leadership done across. In the church, outside the church, in pagan government, you've seen the way leaders lead. Not so with you. This is not the way we are going to lead. He says, among you must be different. Those who are greatest among you should take the lowest rank. The leader should be like a servant. He says, who is more important? The one who sits at the table or the one who serves? The one who sits at the table, of course. Right? We all know this. But not here. Again, he's turned these things upside down. Who's greater, the one at the table or the one serving the person at the table? Well, obviously the one at the table. Then Jesus goes, no, not here, not with us, not in this church. He says, for I am among you as one who serves. He just washed their feet before this meal. He's saying, look, you can't get any higher than I am. But look at how I've led you. Look at how I've served you. Lead like this. Leadership doesn't mean hanging on the air-conditioned green room while these people are serving. No, no, no. Leadership is first to show up, last to leave. That's leadership. Leadership says, I'm in this thing with you. We're in this thing together. You'll know the health of an organization or if they put this in play, if, if the leader can ask someone on the team to pick them up from the airport at one in the morning, right? That's one way. Can the person ask the leader to pick them up at one in the morning from the airport, even if they flew into, flew into LAX? John Wayne? Okay. LA, really, bro? I'll give you 50 bucks to get the other ticket and I'll buy you an Uber so I don't to pick you up. Can it go both ways? Because then that's mutual submission. That's healthy leadership. If it's one way, that's how everyone else leads. That's not how we're supposed to lead. Now, what's so wild, what's so wild is that style of leadership should be obvious and commonplace in nonprofits, in churches, in faith-based organization, but it's not, and I don't know why. Well, I do know, I have some hunches why. There's a reason why here at Voice Church, We've never had a green room. We just don't. We've, from the very beginning, we never wanted that culture. It's on purpose. It's by design. Here is because we don't have space. In our last space, we actually did. See, the disciples were focused on upward mobility. The disciples were focused on, okay, okay, geez, how does this, how does it work for my career? If if this helps my career go up into the right, if this benefits me, if this helps me become greater, then I'll serve you. But if it for asking me to like give up stuff, I'm, I'm, I'm not down with that. See, they were focused on upward mobility. Jesus never was. Jesus was focused on the mission of the church. They were concerned with themselves. See, we were all designed to be part of something much bigger than ourselves. And you know that to be true because when, when you are sacrificing to be part of something bigger than yourself, something lights up inside of us. I'm not saying only the church. 
Look, the, the church is, is not the center of God's plan. It's central to God's plan, but it's not the center of God's plan. There's all sorts of great things God is doing. And if you're, I think of how many, how many great nonprofits that all you guys are a part of. And you know that you may take less money by serving or working at that nonprofit, but you're doing something bigger than yourself. Right? And it's worth it. Can I challenge you? If you aren't part of something bigger than yourself, then you're not part of anything significant. I really debated whether to say that, but it's true. If you're not a part of something bigger than yourself, then you're not a part of anything significant. And you can have a lot of stuff and you can go on a lot of cool trips. You can do a lot of cool things. You can be popular and the, the culture will say, applaud you. Check off all the boxes, but if you're not a part of something bigger than yourself, you're not doing any significant. So Jesus talked about this idea of downward ascent to leadership. A downward ascent to leadership. He challenges us to do the same. So I don't know how you live this out in your marriage, in your workplace, in your team. But to flip, if you were to lead like this, lead with a servant's towel in one hand, well, what would that do? And I think we intuitively know, isn't that, the, isn't that the way you would want to be led? Don't you want a boss that says, let me help you, let's do this together, and not, hey, fix that. Isn't that the way we want to be? Why? Why do we want to be led that way? Because that's the way we're supposed to lead. That's the way we're designed to lead. I tell you what, it's not as efficient, it's slower, but it's better. It's better. So we're going to continue. This is like part one. This is like if you're watching an episode of 24, it's like the clock ticks down and to be continued next week. So we're going to, we're going to circle this target. Next week, we're going to go more into Passover week, and it's going to get pretty gritty here in a bit. But what I want to challenge us to do is, are you leading? Are you leading the way Jesus wants you to lead? Like literally, are you really leading the way Jesus wants you to lead or are you leading the way everyone else leads? There's a better way. There's a better way. So let's pray and then uh, we'll sing one last song together like we do. All right, God, we just, we thank you. God, I thank you for the grace of this church that allows us to speak truth even in uncomfortable ways at times. God, I pray for no condemnation here. I pray that no one would feel guilty or ashamed or feeling less than. God, I pray that you would elevate us and help us to see that there's a better way to live. God, I pray that the people that we influence in our leadership, in our workplaces, our teams, our schools, our neighborhoods, wherever we have influence, God, I pray that those environments are better, that the people there are better because of how we lead your way. More than just the bottom line numbers. God, that we cannot build churches, we cannot build organizations, we cannot build just revenue, but we can build teams, we can build people. God, help us to be people builders. We love you for it, God. Would we represent you well? Would people see you more clearly because of how we lead? We do this to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.